Not that any of you need the reminder, but one of Starfleet's original missions was scientific exploration. And now that we are able, we are embracing that mission once again. Cadets, if I may turn your attention to the newly constructed Archer Space Dock. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, not believing in a no-win situation. And we're here this week to talk about the Star Trek Discovery Season 4 premiere, Kobayashi Maru. Did the episode live up to the iconic phrase that we all know, Cam, that originates from the TOS film, The Wrath of Khan? Did this season premiere really kind of deserve to go with the Kobayashi Maru? Um, this episode does belong next to the Wrath of Khan in the pantheon of great Star Trek. I think we can I'm both glad. agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's not even a conversation point. Uh, well, true to much of modern Star Trek, when it comes to re-examining an element of Star Trek from the past, they really make it big, overblown, and complicated. So you look at the elegance of the Kobayashi Maru in Star Trek II, and you examine the situation in this episode... A little bit of a difference. <laughs> yeah, well, look, the, this season premiere, it made me um, uh, frustrated at times. It made me curious at times. You know, I, I, I don't want to be so binary with my thoughts on this, but I did do a complete rewatch of season three going into this. Cam, I, I, I don't think you could bring yourself to do um, a, a similar thing. And I, I'll be honest, like, maybe it's just because I had so low expectations after Departing season three that... This premiere, I'm like kind of okay with um, how they're presenting things. And that's a very different thing from like, oh, what is going to be the big mystery arc this season? But I think that the way that they are setting things up, I, I'm more interested in that than how they kind of left us hanging uh, at the end of every episode where we, we wanted to get the crew in season three to meet up with the Federation and go do new missions. And instead, it just all revolved around the burn. Whereas here, we jump into it for the very first time in uh, Discovery's history. The season premiere doesn't pick up immediately. And I mean immediately after the previous season's finale. This takes place, I, I get the sense, at least five months, but perhaps like a year. I think like exactly a year because they're talking about the opening of Starfleet Academy and how the dampeners around Starfleet headquarters down once again. And it's interesting. It's like you see them going on these first contact, or not exactly first contact missions, but uh, recontact missions. You know, the Starfleet is kind of reaching out, doing the stuff that I like to see them uh, do, which is, you know, let's deliver supplies, scientific know-how, let's be altruistic, even if it isn't necessarily going to work out for us in the immediate future. That's the sort of stuff that I, I wish we had been seeing by, you know, like the, the uh, halfway point of season three. So that's the sort of stuff that I, I enjoyed. But there's also kind of the execution of that, and sometimes I was a little bit like, eh, because they, the show thinks it's like just the best show ever. You can tell that the producers and the actors truly believe that they are doing just the most amazing TV series ever produced, and just the self-satisfaction, it does great at me at times, especially when we have Book and Burnham doing that cutesy, haven't we been at it with like this kind of partnership for years when they're on the Butterfly People planet. So that, that's my initial takeaway. We, we can get into the nitty-gritty in a little bit, but Cam, what's your initial takeaway on the season premiere of Discovery Season 4? I actually thought this episode was okay. Um, there's stuff I didn't like about it that we'll delve into. Um, to me, this was the most low-key opener we've gotten in Discovery so far. You know, you look at Season 1, it's, you know, the whole setup of who Burnham is and all the backstory there. Season 2, you get the introduction of Pike um, coming onto the show and a lot of big action scenes. And that episode, I believe, was longer than most episodes as well, the episode Brother. 
And then season three, it's the what's going to happen when they get to the future. You have that whole episode with Burnham just by herself. And was it Iceland? Was that where it was? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Like they really blew out the budget for that episode and promoted it as like this very expensive, very cinematic episode. And here it was more of a let's just take the status quo of what's going on. We have the setup of some sort of mystery with these gravitational distortions, but it's pretty low key. Like it's a pretty mild mannered setup for a mystery. It's not a big, you know, hit you upside the head with what is doing this? What is doing this? Um, I mean, we can wait for season or for uh, episode two for that. But um, I just found myself kind of interested in where the characters were, what the situation would be. I did notice though this episode felt in so many ways like a reactive. Uh, episode of Star Trek and that it seemed to be addressing criticisms of Discovery in season three, which I've noticed sometimes with this show. It seems like when the show has problems that become very uh, vocal things within the fandom, suddenly the next season sort of addresses them, but in very on-the-nose ways that often feel, uh, shall we say, not very organic. And the introduction to the new Federation president whose job it is to consistently point out in this episode Burnham's sort of um, I am the only one who can save the universe sort of mentality is the sort of thing I'm on board with I think there's some interesting dynamics but at the same time I'm going did the writers really intend that to be the case when they're writing season three the the savior complex and the lack of self-awareness around that with regards to Michael Burnham uh it, it was just difficult to watch throughout the first or the you know I, I would say that at times the first season but especially most pronounced during season three I'm glad that there is acknowledgement of that they've hinted at having some sort of self-awareness among the writing staff that this is kind of grading uh, let's hit it on head on Let, let's address her as a flawed character which the president was willing to do I'm still baffled as to why a uh, democratically elected uh, president, head of state, uh, or at least head of government, is taking such an interest in a essentially like a sea captain, you know? Like, um, <laughs> Federation has, I think, what, 59 planets now? So that must be, let, let, let's lowball it. Let's say there's 300 billion Federation citizens. So that must mean Starfleet has thousands upon thousands of ships. And she takes a specific... The, the civilian leader of the Federation takes a specific interest in this one single captain. Uh, like, this was just bizarre, you know? And again, it just kind of adds to kind of the self-importance that the writers have around Burnham. If they said, hey, you know what, uh, maybe the president is interested in Burnham because she came from the past, that would be kind of an easy way for me to logic it out. But just the writers seem to leave so much for the... Um, the viewers to kind of head logic around some of these weird bits and like but I, I know what you're saying like they weren't hitting us over the head with what are these gravitational distortions it's they have to face a problem and then they deal with it and it's interesting like they dealt with the problem aboard that space station um it wasn't a hundred percent success burnham takes it hard we have look we, we have a situation in which two characters actually speak to each other um for an extended hmm. period of time um, one of the friends of the podcast dm'd me and it's like uh, I think this is like one of the first episodes where I can uh, remember two people um, actually speaking for more than 15 seconds, uh, but it was only at one point during this episode. And I'm like, okay, okay. So like, I, I think they're trending in the right direction. I, I'm happier with where they're going in this premiere than I was in the season three premiere. And that's not just based on my rewatch. It's based on what our feelings were at the time, because Cam... I had a blast as I watched every episode. Once again, I went and back and listened to our podcast once again to get our real-time reactions. And um, yeah, th that was fun to listen to as well. <laughs> what was the journey like through season three? Was it as frustrating, though, just to watch those? Was it 15 episodes or what was it? It was uh, 13 episodes. And I think by the time we got to People of Earth, Forget-Me-Nots, we were like, okay, Okay, we're going in the right direction. Can't wait to see them, you know, join up with uh, Starfleet once again, and then the show will get going. And then you've got the Seed Vault episode. Then you've got the uh, Vulcan uh, or Navari episode. Then you've got the uh, Running Man ripoff episode in, in which Book is trapped on that uh, scavenger planet. 
Uh, you've got the uh, planet Qui-Gon Jinn. Ep- it's just, it's like, it just hits you over the head with all these boring episodes that have really nothing to do about exploring like the fun parts of the galaxy. You and I, you could tell that um, we had thrown in the towel by about the uh, episode, uh, I'd say episode six, episode seven, about the halfway mark of the season. And we were just like, oh, this show is not what we want it to be. And I... I I get it. Like, maybe shows don't have to cater to audiences, but I, I think you enter into a, a bit of a compact with audiences in, in that, like, I thought the show was going to be about them doing Federation sorts of things. I didn't think it was going to be centered around just chasing down this uh, burn, this anomaly, and it's because Burnham kept saying, we won't be able to bring the Federation back together unless we find the source of the burn. And you and I kept asking, like, why? Like, how does she know this? Well, the writers knew is because the source of the burn had like this dilithium planet, and that was kind of a plot point here, in which now the Federation has you know uh, tons of dilithium resources to share. But we couldn't possibly know it. Burnham couldn't possibly know it. But so it's, it's the writers doing that sort uh, on, on their end, and it's just that's the kind of frustrating writing and storytelling that really graded on me and, and both of us uh, as we went through season three. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing that was also a problem in Season 2 with the Red Angel, but didn't feel as pronounced to me. Um, When I was watching Season 3, it felt much more grating, and I don't know if that was because of a vast difference in quality of the writing, more so uh, perhaps as just running the same, you know, relay twice. It's... I think the elements that we liked about seasons one and two it often centered around character moments and uh, putting characters in different situations and not all that worked i think the ash tyler stuff didn't really work for us save for the the wolfenside moment and that was about it um and the, you know there's a lot of great character stuff uh, with uh, spock and pike going on in uh, season two the stuff that we never really seemed to like about those first two seasons was a lot of the um, obsession with plot points and plot mechanics and going from plot, uh, you know, from point A to point B. Why? Don't even think about it. And the story just gets very convoluted. And I didn't find the storyline to be convoluted in season three. I, I followed it much easier than I did the, the Red Angel storyline, but it was still way more obsessed with plot than it was with story. And the difference is, you know, plot is, you know, um, character holds a gun up to a grocery store clerk and asks for all the money they've got so that they can go buy a car. Well, that, that, that's a plot. The story is a uh, damaged parent is trying to do anything they can for their child to give them the greatest gift of all uh, on Christmas and they are forced to steal. Like, that's story. And I, I'll, I'm just, I gotta bring this up once again. The fact is, I, I think the writers have enough self-awareness that they realize that they didn't have much of a story in season three. Because do you remember the final scene at the end where it's literally Burnham saying, communication. And it's like that kind of voiceover. Communication is this thing that we all strive for. It is key to our existence. And we must communicate. Communicate, 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 communicate. I'm just like, yeah, hit it over the head because you did not succeed at doing that in a far more nuanced way during the season where you do have planets that are disconnected but you know you you didn't really touch on like why these connections are important in in a way that is like deep or meaningful and you said during the podcast that one of your big frustrations um as we went episode by episode in season three is just discovery seems to just scratch the surface a lot of the times before it just hits you over the head with what it's trying to say yeah and there's definitely elements of that in this go around as well in this episode i I wasn't crazy about that opening scene with um, the Batman villain, Killer Moth, um, where at first I'm like, oh, I really love this. I really love them, you know, offering up the stylithium and trying to mend this sort of relationship through diplomatic methods the way we would see in classic Star Trek. And then it's like we're turning it into a chase sequence. It's like they kind of want to get the credit for being like, look, hey, we're doing Star Trek uh, diplomacy here, people. And then they just were like, no, no, we don't want to do that. That's boring. It's boring. So let's engage in a chase sequence that is very reminiscent of the opening of Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. But then they, at the same time, want to have that moment at the end where they give them the dilithium and are like, it's all about the Federation. It's all about the Federation. Well, it's also, uh, didn't those aliens look like the ones from Star Trek Into Darkness quite a bit? Yeah, kind of, yeah. 
I, I, I was pausing uh, for, for a few moments. I was like, are they supposed to be, you know, the same aliens just 1,000 years later? Like, I, I'm not really sure. Like, the, the makeup was similar, but uh, that made me pause. But you're, you're right. Like, I, I wish that they had the, the, the storytellers had the confidence to not have to do these chase sequences. You know, like, you know, recontact or, or, you know, diplomacy can go wrong and it doesn't have to result in people shooting at each other. You know, like, I, I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, give us new kinds of aliens if, you know, they, they can float like butterflies, sting like bees with their uh, phasers, mm-hmm. if you know what I'm saying. But it, it's just kind of, and then it gets frustrating <laughs> where, like, Burnham's like, I know, let's fix how they aim their phasers. <laughs> That'll, <laughs> that's a good idea. I'm like, um, why don't you wait until you get off the ship and then fix how they aim their phasers or, or get back onto the ship and then you fix it. Like, you know, it's like that sort of stuff. I'm just like, the reason they're doing that is because they want excitement. They want tension, but it, it's derived from kind of artificial plot mechanics versus like, I, I love the tension that springs forth from interpersonal dynamics rather than external plot mechanics. And that's what happens so often with Star Trek Discovery is, is they lean on the latter rather than the former. Um, it just occurred to me, I think that alien species reminded me the most of um, Electro in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> like Jamie Foxx? Yeah, like the blue kind of skin with the eyes that look kind of translucent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, maybe they'll make a cameo appearance in uh, the next Spider-Man movie. We can only hope, right? We can only hope. But yeah, it's the sort of sequence where it all hinges on... Well, first off, Burnham having an unbelievable amount of confidence that she can dodge about 10,000 phaser bolts um, before she gets to this, you know, moment of solving the problem. Like, I I wouldn't be that confident if I had a swarm of these moth people firing untold amounts of ammunition at me. Uh, I would be a little concerned. Uh, um, do you know what you would do, though? Um, you would just set, set up one of those bug zappers and then just, like, watch them all, like, float into it and uh, get electrocuted. I would also probably do a better job explaining what a cat is to them. Okay, that annoyed me as well because they, they kept... Okay, so Burnham kept trying to like explain like uh, nuances of language and they seemed very adept. These aliens seemed very adept at picking it up, you know, what, what no strings attached might mean. And then they couldn't understand what a pet is. It's like, really? Yeah. Like, what is it? Is, is it one or the other? Uh, so, I, I don't know. Like, uh, that was kind of annoying, but... Um, I don't know, just some of the, the cutesy book and Burnham stuff. Like, I like I think David Ajala, like, his delivery works. He he seems as if he's doing, like, naturalistic acting. He's playing off Burnham in a, in a naturalistic way. But it seems as if, like, what we have with uh, SMG, who, did you know she is now credited as a producer as of this season, Cam? I made a note of that as, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then also Blue Del Barrio is now a um, credited cast member in the opening. So good for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I, I so SMG, like I, I just noted it very much in season three. It's like she's very histrionic with regards to her acting style. It, it, it can come off as a little hammy. Um, and that works for um, some elements of the show. Like uh, we noted like during the Terra Firma two-parter that uh, like it, it really worked there. Like for her to just ham it up. And like that, that's like such a fun performance. Mm-hmm. And I've seen her in like The Walking Dead throughout her entire run in The Walking Dead. She wasn't hammy in The Walking Dead, uh, and I, I thought she was great um, when she was playing the more Vulcan Burnham, you know, in the first half, or maybe in the first full season of season one of Discovery, you know, but when she goes more histrionic, it just, it feels as if it's more like play acting, you know, like almost that like Steve Zizou sort of acting that we uh, got, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, like she seems to be in an entirely different show than the rest of the actors. Whereas you look at Mary Wiseman and, and she seems far more naturalistic. Um, she, she and David Ojala seem to be on kind of the same page. And with SMG now being a producer, what it tells me and, and what the sense I got last season though, is she's directing herself. It, it, you're not having these uh, journeyman directors coming onto the series week to week and giving her their thoughts on what her performance should be like. This is the Burnham that she wants to portray. So maybe I should just get used to it. But for me, it, it does great on me. And I, I think I think there needs to be somebody to kind of bring her back a couple notches in terms of her uh, the delivery of her performance. Yeah, just sort of that outside perspective to say, hey, like this scene might be better if you played it a little more this way. Maybe let's try both. Let's see which one works better. Um, that is usually 
the best way when you look into the you know history of great performances often it is sort of that collaboration between the actor and the director working through a scene so i hope there's some of that going on but i guess we'll just have to see how burnham shapes up this season um i did i will say like i enjoyed some of the banter she has back and forth with book like i think those two actors have genuine chemistry and star trek is <laughs> fraught with uh couples that have zero chemistry i think these two are pretty fun together i wish they would and it's a problem of discovery not just this episode just as a whole and that they don't really write lighthearted, fun moments that often it often just you know is um sort of scenes like this where it's a kind of serious star trek situation where people just banter back and forth to inject comedy whereas you look back at you know tng you'll have a scene of Riker and troy just sitting in 10 forward bantering back and forth and the scene is not dependent on the larger plot it's just two characters interacting you just don't get a lot of that on discovery i'd like to see it but i do enjoy just seeing the two of them play off each other I, I totally agree. They have chemistry, but when I think about why they're in a relationship, I, I don't know why. Like, I don't know what they talk about. You know, like, we just see them saying, like, yeah, you gotta feed the cat today. You know, I'm just like, eh, okay. Like, like th that's not exactly what it is. But, like, their, their lines of dialogue seem so plot-dependent all the time. Whereas you sit there and watch Worf and Jadzia, and they're you're watching them talk about like, you know, Klingon, uh, you know, sparring. Your uh Jadzia's reminiscing about her old adventures with Klingon culture. You see um Worf being the stick in the mud. You you understand why as you say that there, there's that back and forth between them. I just I don't understand why these two like each other. Like they have chemistry as actors, but why do the characters even like each other? And then that's the issue that we had with um Burnham and Tilly last season is like we keep hearing that they're friends but we, we don't really see them acting like friends ever like you have the line like cake is eternal uh I, do you remember any other moments of, of like real friendship moments you know like uh you know burnham got a gave tilly a pep talk when tilly was going to be acting captain and then promptly uh, lost the ship to uh osira so I don't know if that pep talk really uh, did much, but I don't know. Like the thing I keep asking about this show is like why? Like that's often what happens to me. It's like why is this happening? Like why? Yeah, I mean I like the moment she had with Tilly here, where in this episode where she said, you know, you deserve that promotion. Um, that also felt like a little bit of a reactive line to fan criticism in some ways. But I was like, okay, I'll just roll along with this. But it was one of the few moments of sort of support and friendship between these two. And that's so weird to me that um, we've gotten so few in the, well, at least in season three, just because that was one of the things people really latched onto in season one in particular. I, I, okay, so this is totally not fair, but the season four premiere came just one day before I rewatched the the visitor, the Deep Space Nine episode during my own Deep Space Nine season four rewatch, and you just sit there, and th that's a hundred percent like the biggest tearjerker that uh, Star Trek has ever made. But you sit there and characters talk to each other. They they talk about their feelings. Like uh, old Jake Sisko is talking about what the death of his father meant to him, how it destroyed relationships. You have him and you know. Uh, commander later to be captain nog but uh, him and commander nog talking about the state of uh cooking you know in, in new orleans and it's like it's they sit with the characters and it's not all dependent on plot point plot point plot point where you know you, like a lot of stamets was doing he, he was like like kept you know screaming like well what's going on with uh with adira you know like is adira in danger and i'm just like okay like that's all he gets to do in this episode, really. I'm just kind of—it's that sort of stuff that's kind of like that grates on me. When I watch an episode that I, I don't want to crap on too much because I, I think the show is going on the right direction versus what we were seeing in, in season three, but it, it's still—it's. I, I wonder if they, they haven't learned quite all the lessons that I, I think they should have last year. Well, I look also at the 2009 Star Trek film, which Alex Kurtzman was a producer on and a writer. Um, and that's something that's maybe a little closer in terms of um, a comparison point to what Discovery wants to be. And you have the scene where Vulcan is blown up. 
And you have that moment where Ahura is like comforting Spock. And it's like, that is a really strong character moment that still sticks with me. Whereas like, if you ask me to recall character moments that are similar to that in like season three discovery, my mind just kind of goes blank. And a lot of it becomes that sort of character saying like, Oh, it's been months and I've been with you ever since, you know? And it's like, okay, I guess like, a lot of it just feels like, well, as the famous line was, Discovery is a bullet, and it feels like they always kind of race through these sorts of scenes in a way that doesn't really stick with you. So I'm hoping with season four we can get back on track to doing those better because having, as you said, a scene where Burnham is having this back and forth with the Federation president, that's the sort of thing I like seeing. Yeah. You can have your action in your episode. I have no problem if they want to have Discovery be a more action-based Star Trek show, and there's a fair amount of action in this episode. Um, but give us those moments where there's some richness, where we can actually walk away remembering the scene. Because I tend to find a lot of Discovery dialogue scenes kind of just fly past me because it's either <laughs> rapid-fire techno jargon back and forth or, you know, like a wisecrack or something like that. I, I'm just thinking, like, if Paramount Plus is, is given, you know, like, spinoffs to everything under the moon, like, what, why not just have one where, like, It'd be super cheap to produce. You have a couple sets. It's some far off like outpost, like science outpost. That's it's just pe- it's people just hanging around in like a science lab, and the the tension comes from interpersonal dynamics. And sometimes there might be external events that uh, spark more dynamics within that. Well, maybe there's a quasar outside they have to research, or maybe there's a a visitor that comes and, and shakes things up. But like. You'd be sitting with the characters. It wouldn't be costly to produce the way that Discovery is. I, I cannot believe what the budget is for Discovery. Like that, this show is like you can tell they just pour money into it. But I, I, I just wonder what the ROI is and how memorable this series is going to be. You know, when we talk about it, you know, ten, fifteen years down the road, though. Are you um, pitching a spinoff series set on the research station in this episode? You know what? I I kind of I I thought that was kind of fun. Like I I kind of would have wanted to hang out there. I I think it was a repair station, if I recall correctly. I think they yeah. called it like Deep Space Repair Station, which doesn't quite roll off the tongue as Deep Space Nine. But um, and, and the commander, like even though he he pulled a gun on Tilly, um, <laughs> uh, like he clearly cared about his crew. You know, and it's like okay, it's like I I would have wanted to spend like more time uh with those folks. Like it would be fun to see like them like have to help ships out that need repairs. Like remember that episode? I think it's called Dead Stop mm-hmm. on uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Like that's kind of a a fun conceit for an episode. I think it could work for a series as well. But if you're Discovery. And you're just like blasting from location to location and when you'd expect to get to know the characters within the ship but too often you're going from plot point to plot point instead like i i wish i cared more about the characters on discovery than i do right now there's characters that i like but if any of them died like can like which character would you feel a little heartache if they died in like a in a decent fashion? You know, like not not a dumb fashion that we saw, say Judzia Dax. Um, I'm I'm really racking my brain here. Um, well, you you can't go there with uh with Saru anymore after you had uh, the season two episode of Noble for Carol. Like that one actually did it for me when I thought he was legit going to die, but now you can't repeat that and so at this point it's like if burnham dies i'm just like okay well she's got the savior complex so of course she's going to do that if you know like we've already seen culber die he's not gonna and it wasn't done very well that's not gonna happen again we we have stamets who at this point i don't even know who this character is anymore <laughs> he's like a shell of whatever character we we're introduced to in season one i just i don't get what motivates him other than he he loves his family more than anything else. I I, I don't know. It's just weird. And I I guess maybe Tilly, if Tilly died. But I don't know if I care about Tilly as much as I did, you know, when we first met her um, in, in season one. You know, it's, it's kind of the, the show is, is um, the show needs to do more to sit with the characters and make us care. Yeah, like Tilly was a lot of fun when she felt like sort of the unconventional cast member, like the one who doesn't fit in. And... I think that's why fans loved her so much. It's kind of like a world of Star Trek professionals and this character that's kind of the nerd, kind of the geek that's like, oh man, I'm having imposter syndrome. Like, I really feel like I don't belong here. And a lot of the comedy came organically out of that and was very relatable and fun to watch. Whereas like now, um, I don't 
know that I really want to see that much imposter syndrome out of someone who's like second in command. That's a little bit of a concern. Yeah. Well, I am, I am curious. Okay, is she still the XO? Did did I miss something? I believe she. W That's an excellent question. I I think wouldn't she still be XO right now? I don't believe so because yeah. she was made acting XO, and then when she was acting captain, she totally lost the ship to Osira. And then it was we actually saw Reese uh, in the captain's chair while Tilly was standing off to the side. And Reese is a lieutenant commander, and uh, he's at tactical, or what? Um, which I, I get. And so Tilly, the lieutenant, I don't even know what her job is on the ship at, at this point anymore because she started off as a engineer cadet in training. She spends a lot of time in the science lab. Her uniform is now blue, which isn't that the science uniform, not the engineering uniform. Yeah, is she science officer now? I, I I guess. Yeah, so has she taken over what was Burnham's job from last season? Does that make sense? That would make sense. Poor Linus. Poor Linus. What is Stamets' exact job? I, I, I like, um, <laughs> he, yeah. Like, because that's just it. Because, like, um, Burnham was chief science officer. And... So Stamets, I think in season one, I think he was science officer, but was he chief science officer? Is we, was he in charge of, like, obviously he was in charge of the mycelial jump drive, but like, I, I don't know what his exact job title was. And I think that's why a lot of people just assumed he was a chief engineer. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I think did. they always left it very vague in season one. Yeah. And I remember we were actually surprised that he wasn't the chief um, engineer at, at a certain point in that season when we were tackling it on the podcast. Um, yeah. So, because I I know that um, Jet Reno is the chief engineer, at least she was, I believe, in season three, and I'm assuming she's still around, just not in this episode because um, she only does a couple episodes a season. So, uh, but I don't know what Stamets is. That's all. That's ultimately yeah. my my takeaway. <laughs> I just I, I I have a tough time believing that Reese will remain as the XO if, if that's even what he is like I, I don't know if he is because he's not wearing like command colors he, he's uh he's wearing like tactical slash ops colors so uh yeah <laughs> like because uh, honestly okay well why, why don't we get to the Saru Sukal conversation <laughs> then because uh, as we find it you know Saru is back on Kaminar I, I did like how they have the Baul that, that's part of like this Kaminar parliament uh that's going on now and uh he's like the revered elder um which is i'm like okay that's interesting he's got insights from how uh the society was you know like way back in the day and he's shepherding sukal and telling everyone you don't need to worry about this kid uh causing another burn let's get going with uh you know the federation once more and like we inevitably know he's going to end up back on discovery so what does that make his job if he's captain? He holds a captain rank, but he, he's obviously going to have to be subordinate to Burnham. Uh, so is he going to be the default XO when he inevitably returns to the ship? Unless like we tie Kaminar into whatever the plot of this season is, and he's maybe serving as an ambassador to Kaminar on the ship in some way. Um, but no, because like I, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's in like the promo images. He's wearing his Starfleet uniform. Yeah, that's what I'm recalling as well. I mean, I could understand it. I'm saying, I guess if if he was a representative for Kaminar on the ship, that's a way to work around it. The way that Ash Tyler was there um, representing Section Thirty One. Um, but if he's coming back as a crew member, um, maybe first officer. Yeah, which is weird. So. I mean, we did see Spock though as captain take a you know demotion debt back to first officer with with Kirk, so I, I guess we've seen that's a little bit of a difference because obviously um, Kirk was an admiral, but um, that's the closest analogy I can think of in terms of Star Trek for that sort of um, <laughs> advancement in your career, or in this case, um, going the opposite direction. I, I I guess the the broader thing I want to bring up though is like I think they need to do a lot of damage control with what they did with uh, Saru's character last season, in which like they did him wrong with giving him the captain's chair only for him to give it up to like babysit Sukal moving forward, in which it was just 
I think that was far and away the worst storyline that Discovery's ever been guilty of. And like when I had to rewatch the, or when I had to watch the last season on Star Trek Discovery, and we had yet another screaming toddler version of Sukal like cause the burn. I was like, oh god, stop reminding us of this terrible, terrible storyline. How how many more appearances of Sukal are, are we going to have to deal with, Cam? I think a lot, and I noticed in this episode, I really put my finger on what uh, Sukau reminded me of. He looks a lot like Freddy Krueger, <laughs> and it makes sense okay. because he haunts my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I I I, I he, okay like obviously like Saru's gonna make it, his way to Discovery at some point. I, he'll have to. I'm guessing he'll say goodbye to Sukal, <laughs> and then maybe he'll make another appearance. By the end, like Sukal will make another appearance by the end of season four, but that still leaves open the question: like, what is Saru doing by the end of season four? I mean, you and I speculated, like, I don't know, maybe he becomes an admiral. Although he doesn't really have much like experience, he he served as captain aboard a ship for I, I if you look at the timeline, I, I think it was for like maybe two months, mm-hmm. and then he left to go to Kaminar. I, I don't think you make this guy admiral. No, and I mean it's something I think we just have to ignore with where discovery is going but and where it's been in season three but just this notion of these like time travelers coming back from like 900 something years in the past and like this entire society of federation is just like bowing down to them they're like you guys are what we need to guide us into the future it's like can you imagine if like a scientist from the 1800s came through a portal in like a horse-drawn buggy and we were like thank god thank god can you save us (laughs) I know. I, well, exactly. I'll I'll try to like rationalize it in my head. And, like, what if um some Greek philosophers uh from way back in the day entered through a time portal during the Dark Ages? Yeah. Like maybe then that and maybe we're in kind of the equivalent of the Dark Ages here. Sure. With, with regards to the Milky Way, that, that's the best I can rationalize it. But you and I, we talked about it during the podcast last season. How. Like this made absolutely no sense. Like it was just—it's it, very weird. Um, I mean, Vance did have that line last year about like, well, maybe you guys can, you know, like give us a little bit of insights in how things used to be and like kind of serve as a bit of a lodestar for how things should be once again. I, look, I, I like the stuff about this episode where they're talking about how like we went from thirty-nine or thirty-eight planets and we're now up to nearly sixty. Like that's the sort of stuff that I, I like. Like I and visiting other planets. Uh, let's fix a repair ship, uh, which is kind of ironic. You know, that's the sort of, those are the elements that are working for me. I want them to stick with that, but I'm still fearful that this gravitational anomaly is going to preoccupy everything going on throughout the remainder of the season. Um, Before we leave Kaminar behind, um, why is Sukal on the council? Well, so is he in the council or was he just visiting, like, (laughs) Why is he visiting? Like, as like a like a as like a witness, because I I think maybe they're all very sketched out that one of their own could have caused the burn. They need to bring him in as a witness to say, "Hey, look, guys, it's all good. I'm not near that planet anymore, even though you know my genetic encoding is tied to dilithium. Uh, I, I, I'm getting therapy. I, I I can deal with it. So just trust me. We're good. Let's uh let let's open up our doors once again." I mean, that may be the case, and that's probably a far better read on it than what I was offering up, but um, it's the sort of thing that I go, look, we're stuck with Sukal. We had the whole burn story in season three, but like, why don't we have just a scene of Sukal talking about where he is now, where, how he's feeling, what he went through. It's like they want to just skip over all this stuff and just kind of use him as like a chess piece on a board. Do you want to spend that much more time with him, though? I just want the I, I I want him to be forgotten about. Sure. Like it was it was just, it's it was painful to watch all his scenes unfold, and then when he got to the final revelation about what exactly happened, about how this toddler throwing a tantrum literally killed like hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people that were flying around in uh, starships, like uh, you know, 120 years ago. Like I was just like, like the thing I kept asking is just like, okay, I understand this is a story that the writers wrote, but. Why is this a story that the writers want to tell? You yeah. know, and it was a similar thing like with the Seed Vault episode. Like it, it sounded, it seemed very similar though. It's just like this seems like a miserable story. Why would the writers want to tell this story? Like, um, sure, it happened, but why tell that story? Aren't, aren't there more interesting stories to tell? And they, they kind of did that again with the Sukal storyline, that him being the cause of the burn. 
Yeah, I mean, um, putting aside the um, questionable uh, racial characteristics of this character, but like, is Sukal the Jar Jar Binks of Star Trek? Because you think of like Jar Jar Binks, who was a character who just did not work fundamentally from moment one, and was ultimately the one that handed the galaxy over to the Emperor. That's kind of what Sukal did here, where he like wiped out everything by throwing a tantrum. So then isn't the key to just kind of use as little Sukal as possible moving forward? Yeah, I, I suppose so. Although I always found it frustrating that... I, I, I guess I just don't like it when the writers are like, that didn't work, drop it all. Uh, I would prefer you give some yeah. sort of like, okay, here's why it's here's why we're leaving it behind and we're going to leave at least on the best grace note we can come up with versus just shuffling it aside. But I, I'm, I, I'm of the same mind, but I'm like, you know what? Do that as expeditiously as you can. Like, don't make this like 12 minutes of screen time. Make this uh, uh, a solid three and a half minutes of screen time. Well, until Star Trek Sukal, the next spinoff. <sighs> Cam... Don't even put this out into the ether there. Like, that's that, that would horrify me. I never so got much. my Star Trek Shikar. I need my Sukal. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, look, uh, Cam, like, uh, as we wind up here, where do you think we're going for season four? What are your hopes, your realistic hopes uh, for season four? I mean, you, you could hope for, like, this to become our favorite series of all time. I, I don't know how realistic that is, but uh, tell me a little bit about what our expectations should be moving forward. So I really like this character, the Federation pe- president character, this half Cardassian. Um, I think there's a lot of promise here, and I'm hoping we're not building up to some sort of, you know, boo-hiss conspiracy plot, you know, hatched by this character. I'm hoping that they're there as this sort of voice of reason in situations, or maybe just a provocative um, personality that pushes the characters in interesting directions. I think we could have something really interesting there. I like her calling out Burnham on um, this very questionable decision uh, to take this like repair pod and go and try to save the day during this um, pelting of frozen methane. I'm like trying to imagine a world where like Picard does this. <laughs> I know. So I am on board with this. I'd like this to be kind of one of the focuses of the season Because I think if we could just get character dynamics, and often Discovery seems scared of writing dialogue, but let's have these characters butting heads, but ultimately like have this building towards something positive. I'm really, right now, episode one down, I am really just putting my chips on this Federation president to take me somewhere interesting. (laughs) Okay, you bring up a good point. Like They seem to have this aversion to writing dialogue and dialogue is like back and forth between two people. The thing that grates on me is that discovery writers, they love giving their characters big, long speeches that are all filmed in like slow motion with swelling music. And I don't find that interesting whatsoever from a dramatic perspective. Or like when gray says, you know, one day I'm going to, what is it? Kick butt and do stuff. Oh, Cameron, that's another thing, uh, just just jumping off of season three, just uh, um, how how poorly they treated, like, the first romance, like, r- romantic relationship between the first, you know, um, non-binary trans couple in, in Star Trek history. And it, it's like, they don't even explain what, like, Grey's constitution is by the end of the season. Like, what if, it, what if Discovery is never renewed for season four? And that's the last we saw of Grey. It's <laughs> Grey, Grey shows up on the Kaminar ship holodeck and that that's it and i was like uh what and then so now now you just have to watch like adira walk around talking to themselves like uh, other people are just okay with that like it's it's odd that they haven't really addressed the need to figure out what's going on with gray and, and they need to address that quickly like episode two I agree. And I mean, you have a line where Gray says, you know, when I get a body or something along those lines. And I'm like, is that a possibility? I'm a little unclear on this still. What's your guess as to the constitution of Gray? It's, uh, they've been so fuzzy on it because it just feels like a ghost almost character. But um, I guess they're going to find some sort of, um, you know, trill mumbo jumbo to explain what this is and then just give a new form to i guess uh, it's it, it annoys me because like all we saw with gray 
is that uh, he died on that ship and the Trill symbiont had to be transferred over to a new host. Why is Grey a ghost now that, that haunts Adira, except in the holodeck where everyone else can see Grey? And I'm just like, what? And it's like, did the writers even think this out? Like, that's what I'm very concerned about. Like, I don't think the writers really thought it through, even though they had kind of set it up as something they, like I said, you kind of enter into a compact with your audiences, and I would include that here, and that they didn't really address it. And I, the fact is, we're still one episode in, and this takes place like about a year after the finale, and they still haven't figured out what's going on with Grey. So I'm just like, uh, th- th- this is an issue, folks. Like, you need to figure this out. Yeah, and where, I mean, Grey was introduced in, was it episode four of season three? Yeah. So that's quite a while. Quite a while to string out this whole... Um, Ten episodes. Yeah, that's a that's a long time to kind of be hemming and hawing as to who this character is and why they continue to haunt this show. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, for me, okay, season four, I, I, I need it to be focused more on these kind of um, diplomatic, altruistic missions... I think realistically that's going to be sidestepped by this gravitational anomaly and whatever the cause is behind these distortions, uh, we're not going to be satisfied with the answer. It's going to be pretty lame. And then when we go back and rewatch the season, it's not like we get these incredibly new insights from that revelation. Cause I uh, guess what I just rewatched season three and going back and knowing that it was the cause of the burn was Sukal the entire time. That didn't make the season a better watch for me. It actually made it even worse. Yeah. So, but the thing is, I like this episode. I I have, this episode gives me more hope Mm -hmm. than I thought I would ever, I was ever going to get based on where we left off with season three. So yeah, uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, I think if we have maybe a little bit of the humbling of Burnham going on in this season, that could just lead to a richer character going forward. Because, like, I'm not out 100% on Burnham. Like, I'm totally down for if we get, like, that inspiring Star Trek Captain Burnham at some point. I'm just, I'd like to see them maybe do a little bit of work there. Um, I had a couple other notes I wanted to ask you about. Um, We saw the Archer space dock and heard the Enterprise theme. Um shady fan service or uh, uh, did it give you you know tingles of joy (laughs) i i i didn't like it because it was such a member berries moment where it was like the the theme song doesn't fit within the discovery aesthetics so you knew that they're just and the thing is like I, i bet a lot of star trek fans didn't even get the reference though and so it's just it took me out of the moment though it, it, look any references i can get to enterprise i'll take them but this one didn't this made me roll my eyes more than anything else and that was the voyager right in uh, space dock that's what i believe yeah yeah uh not a great design <laughs> not a great design i was it looks staring like at a blob it. yeah i was staring at it going like Ugh. <laughs> don't really need to see that as the center point of a show yeah, we did see it uh, a, a number of times last season as well, but now they're installing that new um, drive or whatever it is, that experimental transportation system. So it might be playing a bigger part in season four. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Um, also, we had the destruction of Book's Planet at the end of this episode. Um, that's the kind of huge stakes that this show often trades in. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's also a planet we saw featured in the worst episode of season three. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's so many worse episodes of season three. Uh But um, here's why this this is... You'd think that these people are professional filmmakers, but here's the problem. We, as the audience, we literally saw the planet destroyed, then we see Book a few minutes later, and then the crew all announce... The planet has been destroyed. It's and then we watch the crew react. That that's not how you do it. It's you see the crew react first, and then you show the destruction. And that's like the audience that gets it. It's like this is just like filmmaking one on one, and they they seem to like not figure that out. Like this is like bizarre, like like bad filmmaking right there. I just wonder if you know how like during the Berman era it was like very shut off. Like it was they had the Berman era. They're making their Star Trek shows. Not a lot of outside advice coming in. I wonder if that's kind of the same thing with these Kurtzman shows. It's like they have their people and they're not really paying attention to anything else other than what's just going on within that Kurtzman factory that's making Star Trek, which is why you get decisions like this and no one kind of saying, uh, that's a bad idea, actually. 
it just it doesn't make sense from a storytelling perspective like it, it like you don't show the audience what happened first you 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 know because like no okay you can show the audience what happened first but then you can't follow up with like having like this big profound cliffhanger that we already knew about like three or four minutes earlier right mm-hmm. yeah like so strange decision yeah. um you also had that line where Burnham said she was ready for any kind of captaincy. I was like, that's a little presumptuous. You've only been a captain for like maybe a year at max. Yeah. I also like how she said, are you Starfleet? It's just like, oh, <laughs> the whole we are Starfleet sort of stuff. Like they, I forgot that they, uh, that Burnham uh, gave that line in the season three finale when they're getting rid of the uh, regulators or invigilators, whatever they were called, so that uh, Osiris, uh, uh, goons but uh after they kicked them off the ship she said yeah we are starfleet i'm like oh god <laughs> one of the great trademarks of discovery there um also i noticed they did a lot of um additions onto their set for that big action sequence with the frozen methane where you had like fire all over that bridge it looked like a metallica concert <laughs> well the, the other problem is it, it, like for the long shots, the ones that would last like more than 10, 20 seconds, you saw fire coming out the exact same spot, like mm-hmm. at the exact same pace. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, it clearly looks very fake and like looks like I'm staring at a set if, if it's not random like that. Like, I don't know. Like th- that that to me, like really ca- it kind of exposed the threads of uh, of television making. Yeah, it just reminded me of when Metallica does the song Fuel in concert, and it's just like the fire going everywhere. That's what I felt like I was looking at, because it was coming out of, as you said, all the same spots. They just needed, like, the score. They needed to, like, line up all the fire bursts with the score. It would have been incredible. Very metal. I, You know what? It, we have not been fans of Jeff Russo as composer on this show, so let's get uh, Metallica to... Uh, <laughs> let's get them to do a Jungle Cruise and re-record um, one of their classic songs, but in the Star Trek vein, right? Is it Fuel? Uh, I, what song is Fuel? It's a Metallica song. It just called Yeah, yeah, fuel. but so, which one, though? Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. Let, let's hear that for uh, Discovery Season 4 um, uh, theme song, then. Yeah. Opening credits. Or every single action sequence. Yeah, every action sequence as well, every time. It's kind of like their Bond theme. The Metallica kicks in when they rage into battle in Discovery. Can't, can't wait. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? Well, we're going to do a bit of a check-in on Star Trek Prodigy. It is set to go on hiatus after uh, next episode. So, yeah, we'll be covering our thoughts, uh, episodes 2, 3, 4, and 5. And then it'll be back sometime in the new year, I think, in January, maybe February at the latest. So, yeah, we'll... Uh, I, a bit of a spoiler. So far, Cam, I've been enjoying the series. I have my critiques, but it seems delightful for the most part. Oh, cool. I'm actually behind on it, so I'm looking actually forward to watching a chunk of them all together. And, uh, yeah, this will be a lot of fun. Okay, um, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Voyager. Not a great-looking ship. Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Transfer complete.